welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Vinny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we get to hear from Alicia White of Lifespan Therapy. Alicia is a speech-language pathologist certified by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association with a Certificate of Clinical Competency and is licensed to practice speech therapy in North Carolina and Minnesota. She received her graduate degree in Communication Sciences and Disorders from East Carolina University, where she also obtained her BS degree in Family and Community Services. Alicia has been providing services to older adults and pediatrics since 2016, working in skilled nursing facilities in various school districts. Alicia has treated individuals across the entire lifespan, providing services from children to adults reaching 100 years of age. She has treated individuals with varying medical disorders such as autism spectrum disorder, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, dementia, stroke, traumatic brain injury, and is knowledgeable with augmentative and alternative communication devices to further an individual's communication function. Alicia enjoys working with a variety of clientele to incorporate skills from multiple facets to provide the best quality care. Alicia resides in the greater Asheville area of North Carolina with her husband and two children. In her spare time, she enjoys hiking, visiting wineries, crafting, and spending time with her family. I can't wait for you all to learn more about Alicia through this interview and what you can do for your memory. Hi, Alicia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited you're here to talk to us today about all of the things that speech language pathology has to offer for our older adults. So can you tell me a little bit about what a speech pathologist is and how it could be helpful for this age range? So a speech pathologist, you know, in layman's terms is a speech therapist. And I wish we had a better name to encompass everything that we do because we get underwritten so many times of I'll go in and I'll see a patient and I'll introduce myself as the speech therapist. And their first response is, I don't need a speech therapist. I can talk just fine. A lot of people don't understand that our scope of practice not only involves talking, but also breathing, swallowing, cognition, memory. There's a lot of things that our scope of practice covers and people don't even understand that. So it's a huge barrier that we have when we are targeting, especially the older population, because that's where we usually see those more medically complex issues versus children. It's more the artic and language and what we expect from a speech therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The longer I've worked with speech pathologists or speech therapists, the more I realize how trained you all are in so many different yes 
aspects of really everything from like the neck up. It seems yes. like <laughs> yeah. we touched on, I guess, a lot of things with that. So speech, as the name implies, also swallowing cognition, mm-hmm. memory. So that's pretty broad. How would someone decide they need to see a speech pathologist? Well, there's really no one way to decide whether or not you need a speech pathologist. But, you know, the first thing, especially in the geriatric population, is aging starts to affect memory. That's going to be the first key thing that we see. And sometimes it's really hard to tell because sometimes we'll just kind of attribute it to, well, I'm just getting older. I can't remember things as well as I did. And sometimes even family members, you know, if they're not seeing them day in and day out, you know, if they see something, well, they might just be having a bad day. But, you know, sometimes when you see them every day, you can really start to notice that change and that overall decline. And so that's kind of our first indication of, okay, something's going on. Maybe we need to start doing some memory training, some compensatory strategies, because ultimately what we want for our geriatric population is to remain as independent as possible for as long as possible. And really the inhibitor with that is their cognition. So do you recommend routine screening to see if these memory issues are coming up or are you relying on people noticing them? How does that part work? Routine screenings are good. You know, they really should be implementing it with their yearly checkup and really having the doctor ask the patient, you know, how they feel that their memory is, how are they doing with their daily activities, but not also only relying on the patient's answer, but family members, those that live with them, because the patient may not be aware that they're doing something. For instance, my grandmother just recently got diagnosed with dementia and, you know, we've talked to her about it and she's aware of it, but she's starting to really decline and, you know, she's putting dishes away and they're not going where they're supposed to go. She just puts them away in random cabinets, but she thinks nothing of it. But then her husband obviously notices that. And so that's kind of a red flag of, okay, she's not able to sequence that things go where they need to go and remember that. Okay, so that's a pretty clear example of when memory goes awry. Yeah, thank you for sharing Mm -hmm. that. Um, Do you have any favorite memory screens or screening questions you would ask to get people thinking about maybe the less obvious types of memory loss? The biggest thing is to ask them, you know, step by step, how do you do this? Because not only am I looking at their ability to sequence step by step, but to also remember everything that they need. So if you break it down into the basics of basics, how do you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You have to tell me that you need all these ingredients and then you have to do this and then do this before you can eat it. You can't just skip steps. So sequencing is a really good indicator, especially if you talk about, okay, how do you wash your hands or wash your hair? You know, if they end up skipping steps, well, this is something that they do every day. So they really should be able to explain it. Do you find people are surprised when you start asking them to break it down step-by-step when they don't remember? Sometimes, sometimes they look at me kind of confused and sometimes 
you know, it kind of hits them because people can fool each other in general conversation. You can have little go-to things that you say that kind of get you by, but then when you're asked to do something and you're able to really realize that I can't do this, it's kind of hits home and makes it more of a reality for them rather than, oh, I, you know, it's just old age or it's just, I'm tired, you know, coming up with an excuse for something. Yeah. And something I hear a lot is, you know, it's just old age. I'm just getting older or people not knowing what is normal aging, what's not normal aging. So in terms of memory, from what I understand, there is some expected decline with age, but can you maybe speak to what's considered normal or not? It's really hard to discern what is normal. Really, the bigger aspect is how frequently is this occurring and to what extent is it impacting their daily lives? Because I'm sure you can attest to it. You know, we all kind of have brain farts and we just forget. We'll walk into a room and forget why we went in there. You know, it happens. So it's really hard to say, well, this is normal. This isn't normal, but it's okay. Is it every time that you're going into a room that you're forgetting? Are you forgetting where you put things on a daily basis? Are you forgetting, you know, things that you do every day as part of your normal routine and you get sidetracked from that routine? That's when it kind of starts to send up red flags that there might be an underlying issue going on and that's not normal. Okay. So when it's really starting to interfere with your daily life Mm -hmm. is to be more concerned about it. Yes. Okay. And so let's say someone listening feels that happening with them or someone they care about, would they go straight to a speech pathologist or is there another step between getting treatment? They certainly could go straight to a speech pathologist, depending on exactly what is going on. They could talk to their immediate physician first and then have them kind of rule out, okay, what do they think is going on? Do we need to see a speech pathologist? Is it more severe than that? And we need to go to a neurologist, you know, so they're kind of the middleman to determine what would be the best course of action because a speech pathologist obviously is not a neurologist. We do get referrals from neurology so that we can assist them, but that's in more mild cases. But again, we would kind of need the go ahead from the neurologist to say, okay, where are they? What needs to be addressed? Okay. So we want to make sure there's no major medical conditions we're ignoring mm-hmm. first in most cases. Um, yes. With and a also, sudden change. Yeah. Yeah. With also sometimes because with neurology, then we'll get the diagnosis for dementia or Alzheimer's or anything else that then helps a speech language pathologist to kind of direct their course of action and then provide billable information to insurances. Whereas if we don't have that medical diagnosis, then we're kind of flying blind and the insurance companies don't really like that, which is something that I hate about all that red tape with insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's certainly a lot of red tape there. Yes. Um, Okay. So it can help to having a diagnosis can help to focus treatment, but also ensure that it gets paid for by an insurer, Mm -hmm. which... Mm -hmm is generally a plus for people. Yes. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it's not to say that you have to have the diagnosis, but 
obviously it helps. And that way we've ruled out what it really is versus what it could be. Is it, are we just catching it in the early stages and we're not quite able to assign that diagnosis of dementia yet because there are a lot of factors that we have to hit. Okay. So what would a memory train intervention or memory training session look like with you? So it would really depend on what aspects are being affected, but I do a lot of compensatory strategy training. So being able to improve word recall for effective communication with peers, family, healthcare providers, but also working on recall saying, you know, recalling a phone number. If you're talking on the phone and you have to write down the phone number, you want to remember that you're doing that and how to make sure that you are writing it down correctly, either ask them to repeat it or for you to say it back so that you can make sure that everything's correct. And usually when I do that activity and they'll write it incorrect the first time and I'll repeat it just like someone would, they'll start writing it over again instead of going through and correcting the one mistake that they have. So it's little things like that. Also working on functional planning so that they know, okay, I'm about to run out of pills. I need to contact my doctor because I need a refill, you know, and you have to do all of that step-by-step planning so that we're not, you know, two days out and I need pills and it's Friday night and I can't get up with my doctor. Yeah. So very practical life skills. Yes, very much so. Um, You know, and even doing medication management, teaching them how to read the label on a bottle and what that means and then to problem solve. Okay. If I need to take it twice a day, does that mean that I take two in the morning and I'm good? Or do I need to take one in the morning, one in the evening? And also to be more specific, if something says to take as needed, Does that mean that I have to put it in my medicine container? No, but sometimes they don't understand that and they can't follow through with the directions. And even when it's more specific of take one pill every 12 hours, that's very specific. So you want to make sure that they're able to follow those medication directions specifically so that they don't have to worry about any problems by over-medicating. Absolutely. And I know as a a caregiver, these are the types of issues that, you know, give us a lot of anxiety and worry and feeling like maybe people have to be supervised all the time or the caregiver can never take a break if you can't trust Mm -hmm. that the medications are being handled correctly because that can be a huge safety issue. It can. It can definitely. And one thing that I see a lot is caregivers will kind of jump to it and want to do it for them. And while that's great, you're inhibiting the patient from being as independent as possible. What you'd want to do, because this is another thing that can improve on their memory is let them do it and you go behind and check them. So you're kind of like that safety net. They're still having to problem solve and figure everything out and do the process, but then they're also aware of what medications they're taking. And then you come back behind them and make sure that everything is correct. So you would have the the patient 
maybe like write out their medication schedule or set up their own pillbox and then Mm -hmm. the caregiver checks. Yep. They would set up their own pillbox. And usually after every pill bottle that they finish and they put it where they think it needs to go, the caregiver would then take that pill bottle, read the instruction and make sure that it was put in the medicine container correctly and then say, okay, next bottle. So that way the patient is doing it, but there's a safety net. So that way they're still having that semblance of independence. And it's also a memory task. And it's better to do that than to take over and do it for them. Okay. So you really get a lot of benefit just from one activity, even if it may seem like you know, I could just do it faster myself. <laughs> yes. And and that's usually what I run into when I work with families is, you know, it just be easier. I can do it faster myself, you know, but obviously, you know, they keep coming back and say, well, I want them to be as independent as they can and do what they can do. Well, this is something that they can do and you are their safety net to make sure that it's being done correctly. Don't just let them do it willy nilly and just hope that they did it right. Especially if you have some concerns for mentality and that they can't follow directions correctly, but this way they're having to process it, even if it takes twice as long. Again, it's still one more thing that they can do until they get to a level that they can't. Do you find that the patients do improve their memory by doing things like this? I do. I do. Um, Especially once I kind of talk with the family and let them know that, you know, I understand what you're doing. All you want to do is help, but you're really inhibiting them, you know, by kind of jumping in and doing it for them and answering questions for them. You know, you kind of have to let them figure it out on their own. Now, granted, you know, with memory and with certain diagnoses, you know, there is going to be a steady decline. So sometimes it's not necessarily our target to improve their function, but to teach them strategies to prevent them from getting worse quicker. Yeah, that makes sense that you would want to at least preserve current function as long as possible if you're in a Mm -hmm. context where you're expecting that things will get worse over time. Yeah. Yes. So sometimes it's not always for them to get a better memory, but to make sure that they're not forgetting as much. Okay. So I think that's a really nice overview of memory changes and the role of speech um, in that realm. What about something like someone who's had a head injury um, or a stroke? What would your role be there? So those are two completely different aspects in regards to not only cognitive function, but language function and swallow function. I had a patient one time who was 38 years old. She was in a car accident and had a severe TBI. She ended up having a trach. I had to do swallowing therapy on her memory and working on her language skills. And And then I've had stroke patients. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what a TBI is and what a trach is before you go on? Yeah. A TBI is a traumatic brain injury and a trach is a 
basically a hole in the throat that allows for air to pass through. So you're completely bypassing the mouth and you are breathing out of your throat. With a trach, there are different medical complexities with that. You can have something called a passing valve that's put on. So a covering onto the hole that allows you to speak by occluding the air so that air can then be forced through the mouth because that is how we have to talk. Um, with TBIs, I've had a lot of experience that, you know, a lot of them recover, but it does take a long time. But I've had some that we kind of hit a level that this is their new baseline function, you know, and of course the family gets upset, but there are certain things with the brain that we just can't control and we can't repair. Every brain is different. Um, you know, just like a stroke, I've had some patients who have strokes that come out very minor and then some, you know, can barely speak any sounds. So there's a lot of training that is involved with having to work with them to recall words and do confrontational naming, but also have to do oral motor exercises to kind of retrain their tongue and their jaw so that they can produce these sounds to make words. So a lot of complexity and a lot of range yes. <laughs> in this population. Yes. So let's say someone is has a high level of injury or a, a very intense stroke, and there are a lot of things going on. They can't speak, the memory's impacted, having trouble eating. How would you prioritize what you do with those patients? Well, it's kind of hard to prioritize because everything is a high priority. Like anything, you know, with all of your muscles, if you don't use it, you lose it. So the longer you go without eating, the more muscle atrophy that you have, and it's going to be difficult to regain that function. Luckily, a lot of our things with speaking and swallowing kind of go hand in hand. So even though we're not physically eating, the exercises that we are doing help with the swallow function in addition to the language function. I know I've had a patient before who was very severe and he was so low level for communicating. He, he had a trach and I was basically having him communicate through gestures and answering simple yes, no questions to target his cognitive level. Eventually we ended up talking with the family and getting him an AAC device because he was able to utilize that. His cognitive level was high enough that he he could still communicate even though he couldn't do it verbally. An AAC device is an augmentative alternative communication device. In layman's terms, it's like an iPad that you press buttons and it speaks for you. Those are so cool. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and they have it set up that you can use it through visual acuity. So for those that, you know, have no upper body movement and can't physically press the buttons to make the sentences or words that they want to say. They actually have eye gazers that make it so that you can look at what you want and you look at it long enough and it registers that that's what you want. And that you are still able to communicate independently. That is very cool. And very, yes. <laughs> very important too. Cause I've 
I've worked plenty of years in hospital-based therapy, and when my patients haven't been able to communicate with me, they're on a ventilator or have a trach, like mm-hmm. you described, but also can't use their hands to write. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to know what they're thinking, if they are having normal thought patterns or not, what they want, if they're scared, like all of these things, it makes it really hard to care for the patient. And I imagine it would be the most terrifying position to be in, to not be able to communicate out. It is. And you know that's something that I have to talk with families a lot about because they get so hung up on how their loved one was prior to whatever happened. Obviously, they want them to get back to that level. But in some cases, that's not always possible. And just because the patient can't verbally communicate doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. And we're in this day and age that we have all these technological advances that we want to be able to provide them with the technology so that they can still communicate. There's nothing wrong with it. It's still functional communication in in the end. Yeah. And it's such important work that you do there. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand about your career path, you've worked in a variety of settings. Um, yes. one of them being skilled nursing, which is our, mm-hmm. our sometimes called subacute rehab, yep. usually where people go after a hospital stay before going mm-hmm. home, if they need some extra help, some long-term care can happen there as well. Can you talk about your experience there and then why you're making the shift now away from there and doing your own thing? So I've worked in skilled nursing facilities for many years, not only as the SLP, but also as the rehab director. So I have a good comprehension of how the facility setting works. I enjoy working with the geriatric population. I really enjoyed the skilled nursing facility population because It was kind of like the hospital. You never know what you're going to get walking through the doors. But I was able to develop more of a rapport with my patients because they were there more long-term than someone who's just in the hospital for two or three days and then they're discharged to outpatient or to a skilled nursing facility. So that's why I prefer the skilled nursing facility versus the hospital setting. I was able to really have a good rapport with not only the patient, but with the family and make more of a connection. And in my opinion, was able to provide more functional therapy for them instead of, oh, hey, saw you for two days and then you're gone. I wasn't too big of a fan of that. Um, But, you know, like anything, there's always red tape involved. Um, you know, with skilled nursing facilities, it wasn't just speech therapy, but also physical therapy and occupational therapy that we were kind of dictated how long we could see the patient. And that was really hard when you had really severe cases and the patient needed a lot of all three disciplines, speech, PT, and OT. And, you know, when I was told that I could only see the patient for 30 minutes because PT needed more time, you know, I kind of felt undermined, like, you know, my discipline wasn't as important. And 
you know, while I kind of understand that from the family's aspect, you know, they're always more concerned with PT and OT and their functional mobility. They sometimes forget that that's not who the person is. You know, it's not about them up and walking. It's how can they communicate and say that they love you and be able to enjoy a meal with one another. So I didn't like that, you know, speech therapists are kind of undermined and not as important as PT or OT. Um, And that kind of changed when the billing process switched over into the PDPM model, which is the patient driven payment model, which is how skilled nursing facilities now acquire their payments. You know, that changed a little bit, but it was still a fight to say, you know, this patient needs more time. They require a lot of extra queuing. And obviously to facilitate that independence, we need to allot that amount of time for them to be able to process and come up with the answers and not just rush through it and say, oh, you didn't tell it to me within five seconds, you got it wrong. So, you know, while I, I still like that setting, I still work in that setting. I decided that it was time for me to branch out and open up my own private practice. And I decided to do it through solely a teletherapy platform because I have really enjoyed since having to really navigate that since the pandemic, that I feel that I was able to make just as meaningful of a connection through that as I was in person. And I also found, you know, from doing home health, I'm able to see a lot more clients via teletherapy and not have to worry about the drive time in between because I used to have to schedule people again, however it worked for their schedule and the drive distance it would take. If I ended up having a cancellation in the middle of my day, because of the time I had to allot to get to that client's house the time to see them and the time it would take me to get to my next client, I would end up having a three hour gap in the middle of my day. And to me, that's just not functional. And especially with how paranoid some people are now because of COVID, I think they find it more comforting that they don't have to worry about going into an office and being rejected because they had exposure. They can still continue their therapy and not have a gap because they're having to quarantine. Yeah, the, the telehealth has been really exciting for me and how it's been adopted for mm-hmm. the same reasons that you've said. There's a lot that can be done over the screen. It's a better use of therapist's time, mm-hmm. especially in the home health arena of not having to burn all that time traveling. Yes. And I know the patients get frustrated when the therapist doesn't arrive on time. And then the Mm -hmm. therapist is frustrated sitting in traffic. (laughs) There's a lot lot that goes into it. Um, And for some of our patients, especially the ones who are more involved, just getting to the therapy center is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to do it from home can be quite beneficial. Yeah. And especially for those that have to find a means of transportation that they may have to call out last minute. And so now you're not only impacting the therapist of not being able to fill that time slot, but now you've missed a day of therapy and we have to try and find a time to reschedule. And so now you can get a week or two weeks behind on therapy and, you know, 
prevent further progress. Yeah, that's a big problem in the outpatient setting. Where I live, there's a something called Metro Access, which is supposed to be the transportation system for people mm-hmm. with disabilities to reliably get them to their appointments, but they're not very reliable. And it's, you know, it's the patient yeah. who ends up suffering for it. But, mm-hmm. you know, with this telehealth platform, we can bypass a lot of that. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So let's say someone's interested in doing telehealth speech with you. What would that process look like? So they could certainly look at my website and see what kind of services that I offer. The next step would be to call me to kind of let me know or submit a request through my portal online and say, okay, this is the problem that I'm having. What do you recommend? And then we can kind of determine, okay, is this kind of a one or two thing that I can just provide a consultation on like I've done? Because sometimes a lot of the problem is it's not something that needs therapy. It's just, you need an expert's opinion to kind of look from the outside in. I had a family that I did a consult for because their son was having some difficulty eating and was continuously throwing up and they could not figure it out. The pediatrician couldn't figure it out and just said, well, he'll outgrow it. And this family contacted me and I did a telehealth visit, you know, asked them a couple questions, spent about 25 minutes with them and fixed the problem. He just needed to be drinking from a straw now, not from a cup because he was ingesting too much liquid and it was causing him to throw it back up. Yeah, that's but it was amazing. A, a, sim, a simple fix, but because of my expertise, I was able to kind of figure out what the problem was, but it wasn't something that needed, you know, treatment once or twice a week. So, you know, I was able to fix the problem and solve, um, I was able to solve the problem and make it so that they didn't have to spend a whole bunch of money on therapy that wasn't needed. Yeah. So that's kind of what you know, someone would have to do to contact me and say, okay, this is what's going on. And then I would kind of give my professional opinion of, okay, this kind of seems like something I could see you for one or two visits. And if it doesn't fix it within that time, then I would say, okay, maybe we do need to do an evaluation and further divulge. Or if there's something is more severe going on, I would just go ahead and schedule an evaluation to see what we need to do for our next steps. Great. And I think the quick consultation can be so valuable in not only saving time, but frustration. And there is Mm -hmm. so much information on the internet, but it's really hard to sift through all of it and make meaning of it. It is. And to know, you know, does this actually apply to my situation or not? And so to just Mm -hmm. have someone with the training and context to be able to think about what you're going through and provide Mm -hmm. input can be just so valuable. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, that's why it's really important to reach out to a specialist because pediatricians are great, but they don't know everything. You know, they have such a broad spectrum that they can't be expected to know everything, but sometimes they're hesitant to make a referral because they think it's just something so basic that they, you know, it it doesn't require a specialist. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you know, for this child, you know, it was frustrating for the child and he was 
two and a half, three years old. And obviously for the parents, it's frustrating for him to throw up at every meal. He was throwing up every day at daycare without fail. Yeah. And that's a huge quality of life issue. It is. There, which can be very frustrating when you're told it's a minor problem or something that mm-hmm. will go away on its own. And I think for our older population, there are plenty of examples of things like that that are considered minor medical issues that have very Mm -hmm. large impacts on quality of life. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. I know um, with physical therapy and telehealth, we still have to be within the state we're licensed in. Is that true for speech as well? Yes. For speech therapy to provide evaluations and treatments, I have to be licensed in the state where I reside and where my client resides. So it does make it difficult because again, I can only obtain so many licenses. There's so many restrictions and requirements for each state license. Um, you know, but that's why I also offer consultations because I can see them one or two times and hopefully fix the problem, but I don't need cross licensure to just do a consult. Okay. I would so, only need that for evaluations and treatments. So, so anyone, cases. <clears throat> excuse me, anyone wherever they live can reach out to you for a consultation. And mm-hmm. then what states are you licensed in if someone's looking for a more intensive um, evaluation? I'm currently licensed in North Carolina and Minnesota, and I'm looking at branching out to get licensure in Virginia, South Carolina, and possibly Tennessee. All right. You're expanding. Yes. (laughs) Very good. Alicia, do you have any parting thoughts for us about what we've talked about so far or your visions for healthcare in the future? Oh, my visions for healthcare, that would be a whole nother discussion because (laughs) I think there's so many things that need to change and there needs to be so much more inclusion and accessibility, but that's, that's for a whole nother day. (laughs) All right. Maybe we'll do another discussion on that. (laughs) But yeah, I would just say, um, you know, don't think that something is nothing because it really could be something. And sometimes you're too close to see that. So it does no harm to reach out to a professional to see if there's something going on, because the sooner that someone can get help and get services, the better off their chances are at maintaining their level of function, their level of independence, and not becoming such a burden on additional loved ones. And that's probably the number one worry I hear from my patients is they don't want to be a burden. And Mm -hmm. so, so important just to ask the question, get the help early. Yes. And again, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. The earlier you reach out and say, Hey, I've noticed something, this is going on. What should I do about it? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, things that are unsaid are untreated. That's so true. So how do people find you with their questions? So they can find me online at my website at www.lifespantherapytx.com. They can also contact me at 
222-4875. Wonderful. And we'll put that in the notes as well for you to reference. And if you had trouble writing down that phone number, definitely contact Alicia as well. (laughs) Yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Caroline. I enjoyed it. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.